Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Dion Heyman and it's a warm welcome to AFL legend Warren Treadray. With me, Treaders, we've got an Australian super coach on the show today. Yeah, we certainly have, Dion. Well, his name is Darren Cahill. He's one of the great icons of the world of international tennis. Now, despite being a son of a footy legend at Port Adelaide, John Cahill, Darren picked up a tennis racket instead of the beloved Sharon and would go on to have huge success, firstly as a tennis player and then as a coach to the world's best and also a top media analyst. After being recognised as Australian Male Tennis Player of the Year in 1988, injury would cut down Darren's playing career, but other doors soon opened uh, in tennis, that is, through coaching and the media, famously coached Leighton Hewitt, leading the 20-year-old to the first major title in the US Open in 2001. He then guided legend Andre Agassi back to number one in the world at the ripe old age of 33, and also coached Simona Halep to number one on the WTA Tour and her first major, the 2018 French Open. If that's not enough, the man nicknamed Killer is also an ESPN tennis analyst since 2007 and is recognised by audiences for his on-air insights. Welcome, Darren. You've been busy. Treaders, uh, I see you mentioned son of a football legend. You are also the son of a football legend, old Gary Treadray. I remember Gazza <laughs> playing many, many years ago. He was a legend. Yeah, yeah, that's what we tell him anyway. But he, <laughs> I don't think he had 10 flags or whatever Dad did. Um, obviously, John, a remarkable career. But between Darren, between coaching, media, family, it's quite a life. Take us on some of the journey. As your day-to-day right now, what you're juggling with as a analyst slash tennis coach slash former Port Adelaide footy director, you've done everything. (laughs) It's not as complicated as what you're making it out to be. So my life is pretty set now. I'm the coach of Yannick Sinner, a young Italian player. So one of the coaches, in fact, Simone Vagnossi is the other coach. And we've got a really good team, been working with Yannick now for about six months. And great young player, he's got his feet on the ground. Everything that you're looking for in a in a young tennis player and he wants it badly. He works incredibly hard. His work ethic is second to none. So he's slowly been getting there. He's been knocking on the door for a couple of years now. And the last three majors that he's played, he's ended up losing to the eventual winner and taken all of those players to five sets. In fact, that's incorrect. He lost to Sitsipas at the Australian Open, uh, came back from two sets of love down, ended up losing in five sets and then Sitsipas lost to Novak. So he's knocking on the door. He's getting better, but that's pretty much my life now. I'm looking after him on the road about 35 weeks of the year and juggling a little bit of ESPN commentary in between. So for those of us who don't know much about uh, the role of a professional tennis coach, Darren, what can you tell us about it? I mean, what comparing it to, say, um, you know, other professional coaching roles, obviously you know a fair bit about what Jack had to do as a footy coach. How does it compare with that and, and, and other professional coaching roles? Yeah, Dion, I think it's a little bit tough to compare with, say, a football coach because the football coaches are looking after a squad of players and also looking after other coaches within that squad. So it's more of an overseeing role these days for an AFL coach It's or any coach in football. For a tennis coach, yes, you are looking after the team that you have, but it's only one player. So with tennis, the biggest commitment or sacrifice uh, 
is really the travel that's involved. So we're on the road 35, 40 weeks of the year away from home. It's um, that, that for sure is the most difficult part about my particular job. And with that, I've got a couple of bases now because I've been, since I took the role with Andre back in 2002, I've had a base across in the States, which made life much easier that the travel all the way back to Australia is pretty difficult. So uh, being able to go back to the States and break up that travel has made life a lot easier. I've got one of my sons across in South Carolina. He's at Thurman University at the moment studying and also playing on the tennis team. So we get to see a little bit of him. And my daughter just finished year 12 here in Adelaide, and she's looking to go across to the States to start her college four years over there in wow. August. So, yeah, it's, it sounds really complicated, but it's the travel that makes it complicated and giving up being away from your family for a good amount of time per year, uh, that is the biggest sacrifice for sure. And probably surely over the last three Yes, uh, hopefully now we don't have to deal with COVID um, because that would have been a pretty tough time as, as well, I'd assume. Yeah, actually, it was a everybody had their issues with COVID, and and there are much more tougher stories than mine around. But I did struggle, and especially in two thousand and twenty-one, uh, we were, as you may have heard, if you wanted to go overseas, you wanted to work, you had to get the vaccine that allowed you to travel, but it didn't allow you to get back into Australia in twenty twenty-one, and. Uh, if you did want to come back, it was a $20,000 airfare and two weeks of, of isolation before you could see the family. So most of us tennis players went away in about January, February, in February, in fact, and we couldn't get back until September, October, November. So it was about nine months away. And with my particular situation, I had you know, a bit of a tough time uh, professionally uh, with the coaching. And then finishing up at the US Open, getting on a plane, coming back to Australia, I did 14 days quarantine in Sydney. And because Sydney was regarded as a hotspot, then I also did another 14 days back here in Adelaide. So 28 days in a row. And I actually didn't come out of it all that well, to be honest. Um, I struggled through November and December. I, something felt like something was wrong with me. I couldn't quite put a finger on what it was. Went to the doctor a couple of times. Got through January, tournaments back on, Australian Opens back on, but still didn't feel right in January. And actually got diagnosed in February with having pretty bad depression. So... Uh, it gave me a chance to slow down, um, put my feet back on the ground, spend a little more time with the family. I took four or five months off the tour and didn't start up again until June of last year. So it was a bit of a wake-up call and, and certainly just something that I went through that a lot of people went through some really, really tough times in COVID, but that was just my story through it. Wow, massive. Um, well, we talk about your journey as a coach. Uh, obviously, coach Simona Hallett pretty recently, um, Leighton Hewitt on Dragacy. It seems much more than just a bloke who teaches it here tennis ball. It's you know it's pretty much holistic training, uh, physical, psychological, life, business. Is it like a best mate, or is it? How do you attach it, or you got to be sit back a little bit? You know, it's, it, I assume it'd be a lot of. Uh, I remember um, in Samoa with Samoa about three or four years ago. There's a bit of, I suppose, a little bit of media hysteria about you giving her some tough love. So, what's that fine line like in terms of that relationship between being the mate, the coach? the friend, the analyst, the whole lot? Yeah, it is a fine line. In the end, the system that we have in tennis is a little bit flawed because it is the player that pays the salary of the coach. So there is a fine line as to, okay, how honest would you like to be? Because honestly, sometimes can cause you to lose your job. Uh, I never really worried about that because I was so lucky at an early age that I had Leighton Hewitt as as my first player to go on tour with. And, and he never really went out to play tennis. He went to war every time he played. So it was opening the cage door and saying, oh, okay, mate, off you go, go get him. And so that was a, 
a great initiation for me as a coach to get to understand what goes in a player's mind, what they need to compete, how you need to rev them up. Uh, are you talking about the tactics enough? Are you, are you talking about them too much? And so when it came around with Simona, it was a little bit of a different story with her because she always had the talent. She always had the work ethic. She always had the desire. And it was just herself stopping her from winning at times in those big moments. So, yeah, I think that you always have to be honest with your player. It takes a long time to get to know them. You have to ask a lot of questions. But I think the most important thing with coaching is being able to listen and, and understand that you can't coach two players the same way. And that you have to be able to evolve as a tennis coach, especially. I'm pretty sure that's maybe applicable for all coaches. But you can't coach two tennis players the same way because they just don't see tennis the same way that you see tennis. So it takes a little while to get to understand your player. And without sort of going into the intricacies of one person, I can't help but ask Andre Agassi at 33 gets to number one. What did you inherit there as a person and what you saw his growth, even though it was at the latter half of his career? Because, you know, we're all fanboys of him. Yeah, well, I didn't start with Andre until he was 32 years of age. And at that time, he had a wrist injury. And most people thought that more than likely he was on the downhill slide with his career. And so it was a little bit of a risk, I think, going over there and starting with him. But I never really saw it as a risk because, in fact, we chatted Um, when I first got over the first couple of days and he sat me down and said, okay, how are we going to work this out financially? What do you want to do? And I said, okay, well, look, I'm over here for a six-week period. You're playing four or five tournaments. Let's get through these six six weeks. Don't worry about any money for these six weeks. And at the end of it, if you feel like I'm the, the coach that's going to help you get to where you need to go, then we can sort it out and we can move on. If after six weeks you're not happy with what I'm bringing, then I'll be better for it because to get, to get a chance to spend six weeks with a legend is certainly something that I was looking forward to. And, and he didn't let me down. He, he was an amazing guy. He still is. Uh, we still speak often. The way that he was analyzing the matches, the way his, the way his brain works is, is quite unique. And I've never really seen it in a tennis player. And he will ask 50 questions about a certain player and about what they do and what their tendencies are and how much spin's going to be on the ball. Will they put the weight on the back leg? Will it be on the front leg? If I hit this certain type of shot, what will the reaction be? Will he slice? Will he lean back? Will he play with a little bit of spin? Will I be able to attack the next ball? So you had to be on your game with him. And and he's somebody that needed to know. You didn't have to be right because he understood that when you get onto the court, the responsibility is the player's. But he needed all this information so he could process this information before he went out and played his tennis match. So for me, it was a real learning curve in preparation, doing your homework, making sure that you were ready to give him the information that he needed to be able to compete the way he wanted to compete. So, And what he's done since retirement, it's he's opened over 100 charter schools for kids that can't afford an education in the US. He's got an amazing charter school in Las Vegas. And if anybody gets to Vegas, you should go and see it because it is quite remarkable. I think he has an endowment fund that's going to see that school go on forever of over $100 million, which just keeps ticking over and over. And he's maybe the most kind-hearted guy of all time. So just to spend some time with him and talk tennis with him, it's a, a real honor to be able to say he's a mate of mine. So someone who wants to know that much about uh, their opponent, um, where are analytics like in the world of tennis, Darren? Uh, well, we know we know what it's like in footy and and cricket. It's it's incredibly deep. Is it is it at a similar level in in tennis, top level tennis? Yeah, it's the same. You can go as deep as you want. 
or you can sort of skip across the surface if you wish. It depends on the player that you're with. Some players need two or three things that they can concentrate on. And then what's changed in tennis now and on the WTA tour, we've been able to coach for a number of years now. So the player and coach can have an interaction. But on the men's tour now, you can actually coach. So you guys, if you watch the Australian Open, you would have seen that we were able to talk to our male players from the stands. And if something was going wrong, you can't have a back and forth conversation for a couple of minutes, but you can say something like, step up on the second serve or get more to his backhand or get that ball toss up a little bit higher or it's going too far to the left, you know, get that more out in front. Um, get to the net a little bit more often. Use your slice backhand. So you can throw out a line or two if the player is on your side of the court. So that's been able to help us a lot and also legitimize coaching in tennis because tennis coaching for so many years, it's sort of been an afterthought, to be honest. It's kind of hard to explain, but even from going to the tournaments and the tournament directors and getting your badge and, okay, you're the coach, but it, there's, you know, everything has to go through the player. So it's never really been a legitimate profession for us. But now that we were able to hopefully change the course of some matches and help our players work out how to problem solve, how to do it in matches instead of relying on going out and give them, giving them set game plans, it's made our profession more important. So I'm really happy to see it. You mentioned that relationship before, how you know, the player pays the coach, the pressure involved in those situations. Um, is that why we see a lot of, I guess, falling out over that journey? Because mm-hmm. there can be, in some instances, a timeline on getting that much out of a person for a period of time. Is How do you see things there? I don't know how it works in football, but in tennis, normally three or four years is the timeline that you have where you can part, impart all your information. You can evolve as a coach. You can get better. But normally after three or four years, it might be time for a different voice and a different set of eyes to come in. And you go from being a coach to more after the three or four years to being more of a mentor and somebody that's there just to calm the ship. So it depends what the player wants. It's um, Maybe football is a little bit longer. Maybe eight, nine years is, is about the max where somebody needs a bit of a change. But No, about three or four years is about it because we are one-on-one. We're talking tennis nonstop, not only, which is a little bit different in football, not only in tennis are you working on the practice court, talking during matches, you're breaking down matches, you're working on video analysis, but quite often you're having breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the player as well. So you're, you're hanging out with that particular player, you know, all the time, 24-7 when you're on the road. So there is a bit of a wear down factor and normally about three or four years is about the time limit. Eight or nine years in footy before you need a change, Darren. That wasn't a little subtle uh, dig there, was it, uh, at uh, Kenny or anything? No, Dion, no. Come on, we've made a couple of prelim finals. A bit of a bad year last year, but expecting a big change this year. Darren, pick the Carlton supporter. My apologies. Is that right? My apologies. Yeah. Uh, okay. um, a nice little I actually went across to Carlton yeah. a couple of weeks ago, Dion, and could not have been more impressed with the lads there and also the facilities, unbelievable facilities. And you had a little bad bit of bad news the last um, few days, right, with one of your well, star players going down, which is really sad. It's that time of the year, isn't it? Uh, Got to lose one. Good night to Zach Williams. Never Cop mind. That. Up comes the next one. So, uh, Darren, uh, talk to us, uh, if you would, about the business model for tennis coaches because, as you've just said, three to four years is about, you know, the the extent of it. So you, you obviously plan for that to some extent when you, you, you sign up with a new player. And, and if you can give us some sort of a, a guide as to um, how lucrative uh, tennis coaching is. Oh, wow. 
Well, for, for most, it's not lucrative at all. It's a, it's a tough industry. And as I said before, you're traveling so much and you're away from the family so much that depending on the type of player that you have, now the, the guys are not male coaches, female coaches. The majority, I would say 80, 85% are just getting by. You know, you might be making 100, 120 grand a year and you've got a bunch of expenses that come with that as well. Uh, I'm lucky that I've had some good players, so it's been a little bit different for me. But most of the tennis coaches are either on uh, a weekly fee when they're on the road and a percentage of the prize money. And depends how your player goes. The better your player goes, the better you get paid. Wow. Unbelievable, isn't it? Um, and you, you talk about those contracts in terms of are they short-term, long-term, or you, know, you sign up for a three-year period, a 12-month period, or as you say in some cases, is it just weeks, uh, 10 weeks on the road or 20 weeks on the road? So I had a handshake deal with Andre. We could have finished any time. I had a handshake deal with Simona for six years that we were together, could have finished at any time. And I actually have a one-year deal with Yannick. So most of the contracts, are they might have a three-month clause factored in, I would say, but it's everyone is different. Every player is different, depends on the level of the player, depends on maybe the level of the coach as well. Uh, But I, I would say no two contracts are the same in tennis. And your record obviously stands for itself, Darren. But, I mean, let's say you and Yannick um, go your separate ways at the end of the year. What's the uh, situation? Have you got a manager that tries to find you a new role? Or um, what, what's the do – you, do you have contacts in the industry yourself? Do you shop yourself? How's it work? Yeah, most of the coaches – actually, I'm not sure that most do have a manager. I think they – the decent coaches, they get reached out to. So there would be, you know, 50 or 60 – classified as really good coaches in the men's game and also the women's game. And and most of those coaches don't have too many problems getting a job somewhere. So it just depends on what they are looking for. Um, There are maybe four or five really good, strong management companies around the place, but they look after the players and the players' best interests. So most of the time they would reach out to a coach to see whether or not they're interested in a particular player. The, The one thing for me and it's the one thing that's always happened with me is that if the player makes the phone call to the coach, it makes a big, big difference. So getting a call from a manager and saying, would you be interested in coaching so-and-so, that's great. It's fine. But if the player picks up the phone and says, hey, it's Yannick Sinner here, I'm just wondering what you're doing and whether you'd be interested in helping me, to me, that's everything. And that makes a big difference because it means the player really wants this. Actually, one of my jobs about mm, 10 or 11 years ago was working for Adidas. We had a player development program. And one of my jobs was to work with the players at Adidas. And either if they didn't have a coach to help the player, and if they did have a coach to work with a team, if I was asked to come in and consult with the team. And at one point I was helping Andy Murray and we were helping Andy for about three or four months. And it got to a point where he needed to find a coach. So we'd spoken about a number of coaches. And one of the names that came up was Ivan Lendl. And I knew Ivan really well, but Andy had never met him. Ivan before. I knew Ivan really well because he kicked my ass about 17 times. And we used to practice together all the time as well. And so I said, I'll make the call for you, Andy, just to see whether or not he'd be interested in coaching you. So I made the call to Ivan. We spoke about 20 minutes and I told him the story about Andy. And I knew that he was interested because he had spoken publicly about Andy's game and how much he loved his game. And I said, would you be interested in coaching him? And he said, Darren, I have one great question for you. You need to answer this question before I'll give you an answer. Do you want me to coach Andy Murray or does Andy Murray want me to coach Andy Murray? Like, is this coming from you or is this coming from Andy? 
I said, really good question. <laughs> so I said, I'll call you back. I called up Andy. I said, Andy, look, he's interested, but you need to want this. Do you want this to happen? Because he needs to know that you want this to happen. He goes, yeah, absolutely. I want this to happen. Hung up, called Yvonne back, got the meeting organized and away they went. So it's a great question because if the player really wants something to happen, it's always best for the player to pick up the phone and call the coach. Now, you've worked with some of the best individual athletes in the world. Now, what sets them apart? You know, obviously, there's the athlete part. And then I suspect that one day Nagasi might be the biggest brand of all the people you'll work with. Um, and how do they manage that that brand slash encore to business? Because, Argy, as you mentioned, uh, Andre's yeah. probably bigger off the court than he is on the court, even at that stage. Purpose, I reckon, is one of the biggest drivers is tailoring a program around what the purpose is for the player, what gets them out of bed, what drives the player, what gets them excited. You know, at Andre's age at 32, he's already a legend. He'd already won three majors, uh, sorry, seven majors. So been number one two or three times. So what was it that drove him and gave him happiness on the tennis court? And, And so finding that, is really important from a, a coach's point of view, but certainly you need it from a playing point of view as well. Work ethic is big. I think resilience is something that's built up over time and you go through some some tough periods and build up that resilience and you get back up and you fight again. Belief, all the great players in the world have unbelievable belief. They just feel like they can conquer any hurdle. And, and even if they lose a match, they feel like that was their fault it was under their control. Let me play this person again because next time I'm going to get this person. And I think putting a good team around you is really important. So they are the five things that I think separate the greats from the good. If you put good people around you, and I say this all the time, you end up becoming the sum average of the five or six people that you put around you. So if you look at all the best teams in the world, be it football, be it cricket, be it soccer, be it tennis, the best players in the world, the greatest champions in the world, they have good people around them. So those five qualities that you just spoke about that, you know, obviously tend to separate the the good from the great in, in pretty much any sport, I suppose. Uh, are there any any anecdotes that come to mind? Can you share uh, with our listeners uh, about, uh, you know, a couple of those? I mean, you've mentioned Agassi before, maybe Agassi or Leighton. Is there something that comes to mind where you go, that's when I thought, you know, this guy, nothing's going to stop him? <laughs> I can tell you a story in 2003. So it was a year and a half after I'd started with Andre and he made the year-end finals. And this is not about Andre. This is actually about Federer. And so Andre played the US Open. He was number one in the world at the US Open. And then he didn't play from the US Open right through to the end of the year, but he still made the year-end finals. And it was in Houston in Texas. And we turned up there. It was the best eight players in the world. And... Andre played Federer on the very first day in the round robin, and it was an unbelievable tennis match. Andre ended up having match points and lost 7-6 in the third. Federer was also going through some off-court stuff, so it was amazing resilience from Roger as well. And Roger was trying to get that number one ranking in the world, so he was in line for that. And I think Andy Roddick may have ended up doing enough to actually get that number one year-end ranking. But Andre lost that first round robber match. Federer went through, got to the final. Andre had to win every match to get back into the final. And he did. He he beat everyone and got back into the final, was playing great tennis. And he went into that final against Roger, a best of five, pretty confident that he was going to win. He had a pretty good record against Roger at that point. 
I can't remember what the score was, but it was like 6-3, love, and Andre lost. Absolutely got thumped by Federer. And I was shocked at the level of play that Federer played. Just took the racket out of Andre's hand. And I'm sitting there. I couldn't say anything. It was one of the best displays of tennis. And so I walked into the locker room afterwards and tapped him on the shoulder. And already he was, we had a wood flooring and he had his hands on his uh, head on his hands and sweat was pouring down. There was a puddle of sweat underneath him. He was doing all the running in this match. And I just said, bad luck, mate. Uh, Roger was too good. And he just looked at me and started laughing. And he went, what the hell was that? And I said, I, it, was, it was good. And he goes, I've never seen tennis played like that before. This guy is going to change the way tennis is played from that day. So he saw it and felt it before Roger sort of became Roger. And that was the start of Federer dominating tennis for the next six or seven years. And then, of course, Nadal and Djokovic came through. And, and, but he was the guy that was out in front of the pack, changed the way players train, train changed the way players um, hit their forehands, accelerate on their forehands, uh, transitions inside and out of the baseline, put pressure on opponents, use the slice for variation. He could hit a dime with his serve to all four corners. And so he lifted tennis to a level that we had never seen in tennis. So that was the day that Andre saw it and felt it and, and spoke it out. It was an amazing, amazing match. Talk about supporting your athlete. There's obviously some managers involved. There's family always traveling. Is it delicate, that line you've got to tread between coach slash confidant slash business associate, advisor, that whole lot? Do you ever find that that, that can, become, can become an issue at times? Stay in your lane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but also, too, you, you've been a pro. You've been a coach. You're an analyst on TV. You're not just a coach. So the analyst work on television helps me be a coach because you're seeing all these different players and you're breaking down their matches and you're trying to look at patterns and trying to look at ways players are getting to other players and finding weaknesses. So the analyst stuff, I think, helps. That That's a piece of cake. The rest of it, there are so many people now that look after either the branding or the social media or the sponsorship stuff that it's important for the coaches to stay in their lane. So whether that be the strength and conditioning with the training, we have a, I've always had really good relationships with the strength and conditioning uh, trainers that have coached my players because you have to work hand in hand with them. And and the, the best of one of all time was Gil Reyes, who was Andre's strength and conditioning trainer for 20 years. You can walk into a room with Gilly and he's got this unique ability to talk to you for however long it is. And you'll walk out of the room feeling better about yourself. That, that That's the way Gilly speaks to you. And he does that with his players as well. But not only does he talk about what they're trying to accomplish, he lays it out. And then you go out and you do the gym session or the running session or whatever it may be. And he'll actually pull you up before you feel like you're hitting that wall. So a lot of the strength and conditioning trainers, they, they you know, get you tired. They make you feel bad because you've just worked so hard. And then you come back the next day and you don't feel as good as you did that day. You never do that with Gilly. You always come back the next day feeling a little bit better than you did the day before. So he's got this unique knack. It's hard to describe, but a great way of being able to put players in a great position, both mentally and physically. So to have a real strong relationship with a strength and conditioning trainer is important for a tennis coach. But the rest of it is more about staying in your lane and making sure the experts in those areas, they take care of that stuff. 
want to ask you to pop your uh, your commentator hat on now, uh, Darren. Um, we've seen, uh, I guess, in the last uh, six, 12 months, uh, the start of a real transitional, transitional period in tennis, haven't we, with... Uh, uh, Federer going and uh, and Nadal obviously right near the end. Um, what do you think it means for the game at large? And um, and I guess rolled into that is what was what was some pretty disappointing ratings for the Australian Open. Although admittedly they they were out of sight the year before, but certainly a forty percent drop off this year. Um, what's it mean for the bigger picture? Now now Dion, we've been saying for a few years there might be a changing of the guard and we haven't really seen it, have we? Because Novak continues to do Novak things and Rafa won a couple of majors last year with the Aussie and the French. I <laughs> we would love as tennis people a lot of the young guns to come through and start winning majors. I think that would be great for the sport, but these guys are not going to give up the mantle easily and we've seen it for the last 7 or 8 years. Rafa is an amazing person, amazing athlete. You, you want the next generation to be little Raffers, don't you? The, the way they train, the way they treat their opponents, the way they treat everything, uh, the ball kids. Uh, he, he's, his work ethic is second to none. The way he goes about his tennis is just you want the next generation to have his ethics and his work ethic. And Novak, I actually heard Andrea... Pekovic described Novak as being like water because you can sort of get it, but you can't really hold on to it. And I reckon that's a really good way of uh, describing Novak because he finds a way to get through every crack and every crevice to, to break down opponent's game and, and find weaknesses. And his movement and his professionalism is second to none. And I mentioned Federer before being the trailblazer for what he was able to do uh, 15 years ago for a long period of time. But these guys, again, have taken it to a, to a whole new level, and especially Novak, because I've never seen anybody look after their body and be more professional than Novak with the lengths he goes to to get his body into the place it is. Uh, I heard that Goran Ivanovic said he spent more time in the car driving around from hyperbaric chambers to physios to um, Pilates places, you know, whatever he's doing to get himself right to be able to play at that level he'll do it. You know, if you tell him he's got to do this, he will do it. So his day is not just getting on the court playing tennis for a couple of hours a day and then doing a few stretches afterwards. It's a 12-hour day to make sure he gives himself the best chance to to be doing what he's doing. And his performance at the Australian Open, I thought was nothing else but remarkable considering what he went through. And uh, he picked up that little injury here at the the Adelaide tournament, got through the final, saved match point against Sebi Corner took the injury into the Australian Open, managed his way through the Australian Open and and changed the way he played because he had to play more aggressively because he wasn't sliding out on the left foot to the open stance backhand like he normally does. So he became a more aggressive tennis player, took a little more risk, and he was able to do it. So hats off to him. He's a great champion. Who wins a Grand Slam with a three-centimetre tear in your hamstring? It was phenomenal, wasn't it? I mean, what other sport could you do that? Yeah, I would leave a little room for... Translation issues as well because I have worked with a few <laughs> European players before, and that's a big tear. Yeah, they'll have uh, they'll have something that goes wrong and go, ah, oh, my ankle's broken, broken. And, but it's a translation thing as well. So, uh, you know, it could have been micro tears, it could have been strain, it, it could have been. It doesn't matter. He was obviously uh, hurting with something because we saw him here in Adelaide struggling with it, and. And he managed his way through it, and he did change his game. He certainly wasn't moving as well as he normally does. So 
he made adjustments and he was able to win it. But if you look at Novak's career as a whole, he's been able to manage injuries incredibly well. Rarely do you ever see him hobble to the finish line with an injury. He's been able to get through and win like he's been able to win because he looks after his body. It's the most important asset that he owns and he's always treated it that way and that's his body. And you also talk about that 1% professionalism. The the chasing pack, you know, Sinner is your young guy who's yep. coming through. Sits at pass, he's got close, hasn't got there. Is that the difference? Could you think you can train that as a coach, that 1% professionalism? Or is it, Novak just born that way? I think Novak's special in that way uh, because I think that well, his diet is something, you know, I, I, I wouldn't eat ever if I had to eat what he eats because his diet is remarkable. So, but it works for him. And that's what he puts into his body because it knows it gives him the best chance to perform at maximum capacity. Most of the players, I, I think they learn it as you go. It's it's how Nadal and Djokovic were able to catch Federer is because you study the greatest. And these guys, Rune, Tsitsipas, Sinner, uh, there's a whole bunch of these younger guys coming through. Alcaraz, who who is as good as anyone and was the number one player coming into the Australian Open. And unfortunately for everyone here, you guys didn't get to see him, but he's just a buzzsaw watching him play. It's full of emotions and enthusiasm and it's wonderful every time he steps on the court. And I know that because Yannick and, and Carlos have played a few matches. In fact, they played three times last year and their US Open match was regarded as one of the best matches for the year last year. So the new generation is coming through. I said before, you've got to build up a little bit of resilience, uh, a little bit of belief, and you only get to do that through experiences. And these younger guys, they're not scared walking onto the court against these all-time legends, but they need to be able to put them away and they need to be able to beat them. And the great thing about Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and also Andy Murray as well, is they never, ever give you an easy win, ever. You have to earn it. So if you can beat these guys, you have damn well earned it. What about uh, the game down from a, a business perspective? Um, you know, we've seen in other sports, uh, live golf, for instance, obviously cricket, that we've got three formats, T20s, huge in cricket. Do you think uh, there are some opportunities in tennis that perhaps haven't been explored yet? Or, um, you know, or, or, or if not, what are the, just some of the game's strengths and, and weaknesses as you see them? <laughs> we could talk for an hour about, the tennis setup, but just to give you a rough view on what happens. So tennis is complicated because it's there's basically seven CEOs in tennis. So the ITF, which controls the Davis Cup and the grassroots, then you have the ATP, the men's game, then you have the WTA, the women's game, and then you have the four majors. And each of those four majors have their own set of rules and run their own major however they want. So there are seven pillars in tennis and we don't have one set of rules one set of guidelines it's a complicated sport so trying to put a calendar together with seven ceos is a very very difficult thing and there's been a lot of talk about the atp and the wta merging and becoming one tour which i think has a lot of merit to it as well but until we get everybody in a room and there's been some some progress in that getting everybody in the room trying to sort out some real common pillars to to run this game so it's more profitable, not only for the tennis players, but also for the people that put the money up to run the tournaments and the tournament directors. Um, I still think it's going to be a bit of a, it's all over the place. It's a bit of a rat race until that happens. But this is something we've been struggling with for 40 or 50 years. 
at some point, I think that, yeah, if someone was to come along and say, hey, listen, we want to do a bit of a live tour version of what you guys are doing in golf, we're going to do that in tennis. I think it's a bit more complicated in tennis because Live Tour went basically after the PGA. Would that be right? Fair to say it's mostly the PGA. Uh, it's you've got seven sets of uh, bosses in tennis that you've got to kind of run that through, and it's just a little more difficult, I think. Well, speaking of bosses, in your own world, you negotiate probably your contract with your player. You assume and negotiate your contract with ESPN. We're in an analyst. Um, can you take us through some of your learnings in terms of? the commercial word both as a player but as a coach and then also as an analyst and what you've learned along the journey? I can give you one piece of advice I got from Steve Miller. Steve Miller is a former Nike guy. He now runs Agassi Enterprises, so he looks after all things Agassi, all things Steffi Graf. And I asked him to look at my initial ESPN contract back in about 2007, and I can't remember what I was getting paid. It might have been a couple of grand a day to, to do the ESPN um, analyst stuff and I knew some of the other people were getting much more clearly <laughs> and and it's kind of I, I think when you start in tennis mate, you might get between when I started being a tv guy in tennis it was about 500 bucks a day yeah. and I still think you know a thousand there's people doing it for about a thousand bucks a day and you're doing 12 hour days it's incredibly difficult so I think I got a, offered a couple of grand a day and Steve I went to Steve and said Steve, I reckon we can do a little bit better than this. Is it worthwhile going back to ESPN and pushing them a little bit to see if we can improve this? He goes, Darren, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. Sign the contract because you should be paying them. (laughs) What ESPN is going to be doing for your brand and getting you out there and having the exposure with ESPN, mate, you should be paying them. So take the damn $2,000 and shut up. Sign the contract. Okay. (laughs) So I signed the contract and that was it. And uh, thankfully he gave me some good advice because I've been with him for the last 15 or 16 years. You've got uh, interest in a sports tech company as well, uh, Darren, PlaySight. How much more opportunity do you think there is in uh, technology and innovation in, in, uh, in sport and in tennis? I mean, we've, it's been around for a long time. Um, What's your, what's your view? Yeah, so PlaySight's really helpful from a coaching perspective because it's able to give us instant feedback when we're on the court. So if you have the PlaySight technology on a tennis court, it's not just a coach talking to a player about, okay, your racket head needs to be a little more up or a little more acceleration or you've got the open stance or whatever it may be. We can go straight to the PlaySight app and actually have a look at the feedback that we're giving the player. So uh, you might be asking your player to serve a 135-mile-per-hour-out-wide kick and the player might go, well, that feels like 135. And you might go, well, actually, that's about 120 kilometers per hour. And PlaySight will give you that feedback straight away. So for us, it gives you instant feedback to the coaching that we're giving the player. So PlaySight is, to me, unbelievable technology. It helps the coaches do their job more effectively, but also lets the player see exactly what you're talking about. Now, I'm not sure about you, traders, when you're a player, but for me, I can listen to a coach all day and can hear the words, but if I can actually see myself doing that on television and get that feedback that helped me a lot more than the actual words it's a little bit like your goal kicking right oh mate yeah i'm still <laughs> trying to learn how to kick <laughs> but that, that, that raw data is important when you yeah. say that raw data of um uh play side is that live as you're yep. sitting courtside yep. rod laver and That's then true. can a player the other question is can the players see that or get wind of that because i'm i'm assuming someone's dying in the fifth set you could replicate that to your player to for motivation. So Rod Laver Arena during the Australian Open, they didn't have play site on those courts. So you weren't getting the play site data. I believe it was Hawkeye data that yep. we were getting. 
So with the Hawkeye data, we can get patterns with the serving where the opponent is going for break points. If your player is getting into too many patterns and your opponent's starting to pick those patterns. Um, so you can get a feel for a lot of the raw data. But in the end, it's having a feel for the game, the coach's eye, uh, feeling whether your player's lifting at the right moments, recognizing the right moments, uh, pushing through the baseline tough at the right moments, taking risk at the right moments. So a lot of that stuff doesn't come from the raw data. That comes from the coach's eyes. So the data is helpful. I think it helps for about 5% of the coaching. Most of it has to be done through the coach's eye. How new is this stuff? And I know you've coached Simona Halep, who's got some challenges um, at the moment. Um, have you used that in the past with her? And, and, and obviously the other question is, are you still in contact with her? Because obviously she's doing a tough time at the moment. So I stole from when well, didn't steal it. It cost me about 10 grand. But I reckon about 20 years ago at Port Adelaide, you had, guys had a program called Catapult. Yeah, it was, no, it was even before that where we used to be able to put down a match onto the computer and sports then break code. it. Sports code, exactly. And then yeah. break it down. So about 20 years ago when I started with Andre, I used that sports code before everybody else did. And that gave us a good advantage. And especially with him who wanted so much input and so much data coming out of it, it helped us a lot to understand the players and their tendencies in the big moments. We call tennis matches the meat and potatoes. So... If I was to play you, Treaders, and beat you 7-5-6-4, there's a good chance if you looked at the points won and lost, I would have won 60 points and you would have won 54 points. So it's only six to eight points that separate a win and a loss and in a straight sets win. So if you can change four or five of those crucial points, it makes an enormous difference in tennis. And we're talking about the big points, right? The 30 alls, the 30-40s, the break points, the saving break points. So players in those moments, tend to play to their strengths and they have tendencies. And that's what you're looking for. Can you sit on a down-the-middle serve at 30-40 knowing that Murren Cilic, that's his favorite serve and he's going to hit that serve eight times out of 10? Okay, if he aces you out wide, he's aced you with his worst serve. So they are the things we're looking for to get a little advantage. And briefly, Simona, who's obviously gone through a, a tough period at the moment. You've coached her for a long period of time and yeah. she was the best in the world. Obviously, that would be a difficult period for you who's worked with her for so long. Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think about Simo a lot and I feel sick every time I, I think about what she's going through. And I, I understand, I don't have too much information about an update, but I understand sort of February-ish, uh, there's going to be a hearing where she gets a chance to push her case forward. I understand they found the contamination. I'm not sure if it's in a food supplement or a supplement she was taking or a, a drink supplement she was taking, but they know where it's come from. So I did release a statement when this came out a couple of months ago about Simona, and I'll be buried standing by that statement because her integrity and uh, the DNA that she's made of, there's no chance she would ever, ever cheat. And she's just a great woman and a great person. And, and so there's no way she would ever do the wrong thing. So I got my fingers crossed for her. I, I do hope, you know, WADA puts this blanket statement out that every athlete's responsible for what goes in their system. And that's true. And so Simona will pay the penalty for it. Hopefully it won't be too much longer, but the fault does not lie with her. She's not wrong in this. She didn't do anything wrong. So I hope whether it be a company's made a mistake or whether it's been a medical person or whether it's been someone from the WTA or someone in, within her team, you know, maybe didn't do their due diligence. So whatever it may be, I hope somebody puts their hand up and takes responsibility for this because the one thing I do know is that Simona is not at fault here. So I've got my fingers crossed for her and 
we want to see you back on court as quickly as possible. Well said. A uh, quick five questions before you go. We appreciate your time uh, before you head overseas. Now, if you didn't end up, end up in tennis, where would you have been? I would have been a football player. I, I was reasonably good. My dad used to call me Triple S, soft, slow, and too short. So, <laughs> I, wow. Uh, but I was. I was a late developer. I didn't grow until I was 18 or 19. So, um, I, I started off in the midfield playing school footy and then ended up in the forward pocket because I was a little bit slow and small and used to get beat up on a little bit because I was Jack Cale's kid. So targeted a little bit, as you know, Tratters, but you're a much bigger athlete than I was, mate. So, uh, But I would have played football. I love it. When I walk through the Port Adelaide Football Club, it sends chills down my spine and I love that place and, and hopefully we can have a much better year this year. Yeah, and you've had a fair contribution to the board. Obviously, travelling overseas makes it pretty hard to hang around doing that. Yeah, no, I'm on the road 35, 40 weeks of the year. So it's made it really difficult with not just the board meetings, but also the football committee meetings. But they're in good hands there. The board, incredible people. And uh, the one person that stands out for me, I know Koshy's done an incredible job to put us on the Mac, but Holly Ransom, is uh, she's a superstar. And so to have her, she's a, a bit of a chaos creator and she makes us think in different ways. And and I think pushing everybody to think outside the the boundaries and make everybody better, she's done a great job. And uh, the board is full of good people, and I really enjoyed the four years. And fingers crossed, we can have a good year this year. Well, I hope that's the plan. Uh, greatest sporting moment you've personally witnessed? Simona winning the French Open. Uh, that to me was goosebumps, tears, um, satisfaction, relief, e- every single emotion possible. Uh, all came out that day. Uh, the way she did it, the way that she dealt with the pressure. Uh, the disappointment she had to put behind herself. She got down in that match, a set in the break, fought back like a little champion. Uh, that was, you know, that's the biggest moment in my life. As I've told her before, as I had a couple of good wins when I played, but for me, that was my most memorable sporting moment. And the one thing you'd change in tennis, if you could, if you were one of the big seven? Oh, there'd be many, but the one thing I would do straight away would be if the ball is released from the hand, the ball toss for the serve, it's in play. There's no drop in the ball toss. If you're not good enough to throw the ball toss up straight and hit that serve, that's a fault. So I would change that straight away. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Darren Cale. Anytime, traders. Thanks, mate. And uh, if you remember, there's a stack of great interviews lined up. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast, The Big Deal, and keep track of all the latest sporting deals, details, and drama by joining our community at www.thebigdeal.au. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.